You know, these days with coronavirus going all around the globe, we are all buying more and more things online. And on Amazon in particular, when you go online and you're buying something, if you notice over under the add cart button and buy now button, there's a thing that says sold by and then has some kind of business name there. What's that all about? Well, those are called Amazon private label sellers. They are people who source products, maybe in China, although these days probably not, lots of different places, and then they resell it for a profit on Amazon. It's a crazy business model that actually works very, very well. And my guest today is somebody who has used that business model to build quite a life for himself. But he wasn't always the successful business person that you're going to hear speaking to you today. And since he used to play in a rock band as a guitarist, that'd be fun to put the story of his life to that kind of soundtrack. My, my childhood was, was great. I had a great father. I had a bunch of great friends. I have three friends that I grew up with that we always played baseball, basketball, whatever the season was we were playing. You would say like on the outside looking in, I had a pretty okay family, but behind the door, you know, I had some issues. I had some struggles. I had being, you know, afraid that my mother wasn't going to be there when I get out of school because, you know, she had been taken away to go to rehab and and all of that stuff. So I, I did go through a lot growing up, but it also taught me a lot. And I don't look at that as like, oh my gosh, you should feel sorry for me or anything like that. I did learn a lot. I learned a lot about family, what I wanted. I understand mental illness. I sympathize with it because I know what it is. And, you know, it's kind of shaped me to who I am today. So I really am grateful for what I have. It wasn't an easy road, but here I am. That is the voice of Scott Volker. Scott is also the host of the podcast, The Amazing Seller. Scott's been a client of mine for a long time, and I've always appreciated Scott's story. In this special podcaster story episode of Podcastification, we're going to dig into Scott's story, and I want to let you know right up front, I experienced some technical issues that caused me to lose the first part of our conversation. So we're going to pick up Scott's story in a very difficult spot, but as you'll see, he hasn't let it phase him. He's the same old, everyday guy he's always been. You're really going to enjoy hearing Scott's story. Stick around for this special edition of Podcastification, another podcaster story. Way back in 2003-2004, an amazing new media technology was developed. It was audio content that could be directly delivered to anyone who subscribed to it. And they called it a podcast. Since that time, podcasting technology has improved and the number of shows have increased exponentially. In these special edition audio sessions of my show, Podcastification, I feature the stories of the people who have found success creating their own podcast, and I'm calling them Podcaster Stories. Just to give you a little idea what to expect for this episode of Podcaster Stories, I typically play around with these interviews a lot, and I pick out the spots that I feel are going to make the biggest impact, and that's what I share with you. But this conversation with Scott, man, it was something totally different. We had such a great time connecting, and his story is so rich with detail and with practical advice for anybody who's looking to start, well, practically anything. So I wanted to share the conversation with you in its entirety. So this is going to be more of a typical interview, which is really not my thing most of the time. But I think you're going to agree as you listen to this that Scott has some gems to share. Here you go. This is Scott's story. My mother was kind of in and out of rehabs. And uh, my, my mother, though, I just want to clarify, she was a very loving woman, very caring, very open, very honest. It was her upbringing as well. I grew up, her parents owned a bar. Her father ended up committing suicide when I was eight months in my mother's stomach. So that was a big blow for her and my father. And uh, my father actually found him in the garage and 
And my uh, goodness. Yeah. So I, I know that's not how the episode here was supposed to start there, Carrie, but uh, hey, you know, why not just get right into it, right? You asked me how my childhood was, right? My, my childhood was, was great. I had a great father. I had a bunch of great friends. I have three friends that I grew up with that we always played baseball, basketball, whatever the season was we were playing. You would say like on the outside looking in, I had a pretty okay family, but behind the door, you know, I had some issues. I had some struggles. I had being, you know, afraid that my mother wasn't going to be there when I get out of school because, you know, she had been taken away to go to rehab and, and all of that stuff. So I, I did go through a lot growing up, but it also taught me a lot. And I don't look at that as like, oh my gosh, you should feel sorry for me or anything like that. I did learn a lot. I learned a lot about family, what I wanted. I understand mental illness. I sympathize with it because I know what it is. And, you know, it's kind of shaped me to who I am today. So I really am grateful for what I have. It wasn't an easy road, but here I am. You know, my family has some alcoholism in my dad's side. Sure. And I've always been very intrigued, very curious about what do you think as a child growing up in that is the difference between a person who comes to a place like you did where you're going to persevere and accomplish things in spite of it Mm. as compared to a person who, for whatever reason, it drags them down and they feel victimized or like they can't rise above it. What do you think is the difference between those two kind of people? Yeah, I know. It's an interesting question. I didn't feel... At times, I probably did. I didn't really feel sorry for myself. I did have a very, very supportive father. Like he was the backbone and he was always like my hero. You know, like he was the guy that worked three jobs and he was raised with nine brothers and sisters on a farm. Like get out there, work hard and you'll do great. So I had that. And some people would say, well, did you turn away from alcohol then? Were you afraid of it? And I really wasn't. I dabbled with, you know, drinking when I was in high school and stuff, but nothing crazy. And even to this day, I'll have a couple of beers on the weekend, but I'm not going to go get hammered. You know, I, I just think that when someone is in that, you can't even understand what they're going through. Because a lot of times, it's not that they're drinking just to drink because they want to get a buzz on. They're doing it because they're masking something. And yes, then it can turn into a habit. And then when it turns into a habit, then we have other issues because now your body's requiring it. But a lot of times, you're trying to cover up certain things or numb them. And I didn't really have those. As much as I went through, I didn't want to numb it. I wanted to have, I wanted to have kids. I wanted to have a wife. I wanted to have my own house. I wanted to have stability. And I think that was a big driver for me is stability. And it is to this day. I mean, people would say, oh, Scott, you know, you got everything made, you know, you're great. And I'm like, I still have those fears and those things that I still want security. I still want stability. So I think just for me personally, I just wanted stability. And I think yeah. it, it's hard to understand and really put a finger on it. Like, what is the difference? The difference is I did have good people in my life that did support me and did make me feel as though I could achieve certain things. And one of those people was my father, yeah. even to this day, is a big promoter. My wife has been a huge promoter. You know, I got married when I was 21, so I was a kid. I mean, I give a lot of credit to my wife because she's a huge a huge promoter in in me getting out there and believing in myself. So I think it's a lot of times just surrounding yourself with like-minded people that can help and support you and rise above it. Again, if I stayed in that environment, if I went down that road of like drinking and drugs and all that stuff, I probably wouldn't be where I am today because I would have fallen into that. So I think it's- Yeah, me too. It's that turning point. Like, where was it? I don't know. But I just feel like the difference is the people and your decision in your own mind, like, what do I want out of life? And believe in that. I get that. I really get that. And I think sometimes the instability growing up drives us to want stability. So for the right person, the person who's wired to take the reins in their own life, they do that. And that sounds like what you did. Yeah. So I know one of the aspects of your story is some construction or some some manual labor in your background. Why don't you tell me a little bit about that season of your life? Yeah. Well, my father, like I said, you know, he grew up on a farm. And he was actually glad he got drafted. He got drafted in the army and then he went to the Navy recruiting office and he said, how do I go in the Navy? I was just recruited in the army. They said, <laughs> he, and I'm not even kidding. And the recruiter said, he goes, you were here yesterday. So they basically signed his thing so he oh could my. go in the Navy versus going in the army because he didn't want to be on the ground. He wanted to be like 
on a ship or something. So he actually got drafted in the armed forces. So he went in the Navy for four years. He was glad because he got off the farm. He was the last kid to leave the farm and he felt guilty for leaving his father, but he had to go. He was drafted. So he ended up doing that. And then after he got out of the service, he started to work for, it was like a linen company driving truck. And then he got a job at General Electric and he thought, boy, this is going to be the ticket. He got a good job. He was making good money at back then. I mean, good enough money back then for for those times. And then he got laid off about seven years in. He needed 10 years in order to get any type of uh, you know severance or anything like that. So he had to go start fending for himself. So he started a construction company with a uh, coworker of his and they started doing these odd jobs and stuff. And then they kind of shaped it into a window door and remodeling company. As I was growing up, I mean, I was probably 16 years old when that was starting to happen. And then I would get hired on the weekends to kind of do some grunt work and stuff. You know, I learned about the trade a little bit, but not enough to where I was going to be a construction worker. And then I started working for a uh, a couple different companies out of high school. I didn't go to college. That's one other thing to point out. When I was being brought up, there was no talk of let's go visit colleges. Let's go figure out what you're going to do when you grow up. It was very clear. You're going to get a job. Yeah. So very blue collar. Oh, I, I, Carrie, I didn't have one conversation about college with my father, my mother, no one, zero, none. There was no, like, you got to go to college. You got to get a degree. You got to, you know, whatever. What do you want to do with your life? There was none of that. As a teenager, as a, as a high schooler, say, Was there any part of you that wanted that, that wanted your parents to bring up college to help you think about that possibility? Or was it just totally not on your radar? It wasn't even on my radar because I wanted to get out of school so fast, Carrie. (laughs) I didn't like school. I was terrible at school. I was a C average. Wow. I could barely get by. I got by in history, which was one of my worst subjects. I got through that class because I just handed in all my homework. Yeah. I didn't do good on tests. I'm a terrible test taker. Even to this day, I'd get in a sweat if I had to take a test. Like I'm just not a test guy. Even like doing podcasts and stuff, like I don't want to have to have a script that I follow or I'll screw up, right? So I'm just off the cuff kind of guy and tests, they kind of get me all, they get me all uh, all yeah. in a panic. So, uh, so yeah, I just wanted to get out of school. And now if my father was to push me a little bit, I probably would have started thinking I, I should because he's telling me it's the right thing to do. Mm. But that wasn't it. It was like, you're going to get out there. You're going to you're gonna learn a trade and you're going to go out there and make a living. And that's what you're going to do. So, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do. So I, uh, I was working at a restaurant all the way through. And again, I mean, I was a pretty responsible kid. I was working at the age of 14 years old, dishes. And then I went to an ice cream place where I did ice cream. I made ice cream. Then I went to a, a deli, started cooking and making sandwiches and stuff. And uh, that lady there, my manager, she introduced me to her husband who was a pressman at a uh, company called Quad Graphics. I don't know if you ever heard of yeah. Quad Graphics, but they they print golf magazine, uh, you know, all the big people magazine, all the big magazines. And there was one in our local area. And uh, she was like, you know, I could get him to have you, you know, have an interview and we can see where that leads you and they'll train you. It's going to take probably six to eight years to become a pressman. But if you become a pressman, you'll be making between, and this is back then, we're going back 20 plus years ago, like between 60 and $75,000 a year. And I'm like, yeah, sign me up. So I did that and I hated it. Absolutely hated it. It was in a, a, you know, basically it was in a factory uh, with all these presses running and I was the grunt guy. So I was at the bottom of the ladder. You know, I had to basically stand there for 12 hours. It was 12 hour shifts, seven at night to seven in the morning. And uh, I hated it. I literally hated it. So I ended up sticking it out for nine months and I said, you know what? I can't do this anymore. So I went back and flipped burgers Mm. for like six bucks an hour. So nine months was long enough for you to give birth to discontent. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Basically, that's what it was like. And I remember going to that parking lot, the lights were on because I'd work at night, seven at night to seven in the morning. And it was just awful. I felt like I feel sick to my stomach. It was just awful. So then I had a girlfriend at the time that her mother worked at the cable company. And she said, you know, they're hiring installers. I go, all right, give me an interview. Got me an interview. They Sign me up. I was making $6.25 an hour. And I'm like, okay, this is great. You know, I mean, not great money, but I can go out there. They give me my work orders. I'm out on my own. No one's looking over my shoulder. Beautiful. I loved it. So for about a year, I was doing that. And then my father finally sat me down. He goes, hey, you know, we're, we're going to be expanding our business. We need someone. Would you want to come to work for us? And he's like, I'll tell you what, you're making six and a quarter. I'll pay you seven bucks an hour to come. I'm like, okay, it sounds like a great deal. And I'm going to learn a trade. And who knows, maybe one day I'll own the company. So long story short, that's kind of how I got into the construction world. And 
you know, once I got in there, we started to build the company. We built it from, it was probably doing, I don't know, a few hundred thousand dollars a year in revenue. So, you know, he was making an okay living. I mean, probably 50,000 a year. And we grew that into uh, a business that was generating over $2 million a year. We grew it to, uh, let's see, we had about 16 to 18 employees. I was in charge of basically all of the crews. So I worked myself up from a guy that didn't even really know how to read a tape measure to, uh, you know, running these crews and, and really being able to build a house, you know, from scratch. So it, it was pretty interesting. And I thought I was going to own that company. I mean, my father was telling me, his partner was telling me, and then, before you know it, we got his family members getting involved. And then all of a sudden we get arguments and I could see the writing on the wall. This was not going to be where I was probably going to end up. But now what do I do? Right? Like, Well, that brings up a great question. Back in the time when you tried the role as a pressman and you hated it, you moved, you moved to burgers. Now this time you're in the construction job. It's not panning out like you're thinking. What's going on inside? What are you feeling? Is there any kind of sense of hopelessness? Like, man, am I ever going to get the thing that I'm supposed to do? Mm. To be honest with you, I felt kind of like a failure in a sense that, you know, I should have gotten an education. What am I going to be able to do? All I know what to do is, is construction. I can go out there and do my own work. I can find my own work. I can even go work for one of our competitors if I wanted to, but I just... I was gone all the time. And at this time, I had a three-year-old daughter when I was starting to think to myself, this isn't probably going to work. And, you know, I had a family now, you know what I yeah. mean? And I was missing because I was I was the dedicated worker. Like we'd have workers that would come in at eight and they'd be gone at four. Scott's there at six getting the job orders ready. And then Scott's leaving at eight o'clock because the job's got to get finished because we're depending on that check to get payroll paid at the end of the week. So I was working 60 plus hours a week. That was my deal. And, you know, I didn't think anything of it at the time. You know, I, I kind of enjoyed like getting up in the morning, getting my coffee, going to work, you know, and it was, I was busy, but I also felt like... Like, man, there's nothing else that I can do to be successful or to be able to have that freedom to be able to see my daughter and, you know, getting home at night and then her going to bed. It was like, that's all I seen of her. So I just knew there had to be a better way, but I felt hopeless, to be honest with you. I felt like, what the heck am I going to do? I just probably wasted six years of my life when I should have gotten an education. I should have did something that I could fall back on. Mm. And uh, yeah, I felt kind of down on myself and kind of like I was not that smart of a guy, to be honest with you. I felt kind of like a little bit of a loser. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what the heck am I doing? You There's know? a great question to follow up there, but I first want to tell you that one of the things I've always enjoyed about your story and about working with you is that you're just a regular guy. You don't have any pretension. You don't have any sense of, you know, I'm better than you or I know better in this. Or I mean, you're you're humble, you're, ready, you're willing to learn. And I think that has served you very well. Mm. So launching from that, you're at this hopeless point with the construction. You don't think you're really going to take over. Where did the idea of creating your own business come from? Because I know there was photography business and all kinds of stuff. So, so where did that come from? Well, I've always wanted to own my own business because I'm like, you know what? If I can own my own business, then I can call the shots. And if I want to make more money, it's up to me to make that happen. I don't have to like deal with my father's partner and deal with you know their family and all the employees that went along with it. And I'm like, uh, so it's gotta be a better way, but I've always wanted that. And even when I was working for my father, I was always dabbling in stuff, right? Like my wife and I, we'd, we would do craft fairs. We would make these uh, melting pots where her mother was in ceramics. So her mother had a whole ceramic studio. So my wife was, you know, making these melting pots. And at the time they were pretty popular. You put these little tarts in there. You put a little tea light candle and then we burn and women loved them. And we'd go to craft fair. She'd spend like two weeks making these things. And then we'd sell them on a weekend and we might make 150 bucks. We're like, yeah, that was awesome. Look at that. We made an extra 150 bucks. So we didn't know how we were going to scale that. We didn't even know what scaling meant, but it got us excited about what could happen if we actually did something. My, my wife's very smart. She went to two years college and then she had a great job offer. Her father got her uh, into Niagara Mohawk and she was making like $40,000 a year when I met her and she's uh, five years older than me. So I was like, what are we going to do? We're going to cut that out of there. So we ended up saying, you know what? We want her to be home with the kid and all that. So I ended up putting all that strain on myself, but I knew that we could do something together. I just didn't know what. She was always creative. So I remember I was sitting in the dining room and actually, by the way, a little side note here, I built my house on a piece of property that her father gave us. Her father passed away at 56 from cancer. And so he left us a piece of property, just a blank slate, and we went ahead and we said, you know what, we're going to build a house on it. And so I wasn't busy enough or anything working 60 <laughs> plus hours a week. So I decided I'm going to build a house. 
So I did. And uh, in 11 months, I built that house that I raised my family in for 17 years. So I did that on the side. So when people say, Scott, you know, I don't have time. I'm like, yeah, yeah don't give me yeah. that. I was out working on my house at 11 o'clock at night, finishing up tile while, you know, I had to go to work the next morning at 536 o'clock. You don't say that with any kind of chip on your shoulder. You just say it to say there's really are no excuses. Yeah. Even when I was building my online businesses, which we'll get into, I would stay up late at night, wee hours in the morning. Sometimes the sun would be, still, would be coming up or the, you know what I mean? Like I would pull an all nighter because that's the only time I had, but I wanted it so bad. Mm. And I was really excited about what we were doing. But, you know, we had taken our 23 year old now, but uh, at the time she was like three or four and we took her to get pictures at this very high end place. I mean, we went to Sears and JCPenney and all those, but this was more of a high end place. And I'm like, we can't afford that. My wife's like, well, they're giving you a free eight by 10 and they'll give us that. We'll just go in for the eight by 10. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Okay. So we ended up doing it and it was a terrible experience, but the pictures that they created were great. And so my wife says to me, she goes, you know, we could do that. And I'm like, do you know anything about photography? And she's like, well, <laughs> I, I know composition. I, I like know how to set up a good shot. I'm like, yeah, there's a lot more that goes to that. And don't you need to go to college for that? She's like, no, I don't think so. So she said, why don't I just try this on the side and you can you know, help me kind of figure out the mechanics behind it. I'm like, okay, can't hurt. So uh, that's what we did. We put a little ad in the penny saver. We said we will do a session for like 25 bucks or something. We went down to our local lab. We got a camera. We got a lens. We got a background. We got a lighting kit. We spent about $3,500, $4,000 on this equipment that I didn't have the money for, by the way. I put it on a credit card and uh, we bought some books. YouTube wasn't even really happening then. It wasn't really like you can go there and figure out how to be a photographer. And we read a lot of books and I didn't like reading either, by the way, but uh, I read those books. And and, uh, and I learned, yeah, we started that with barely anything. And then uh, we turned that into a six-figure business. And I left my job. I, I told my father I was going to leave the company. He was actually excited for me. Yeah. And then we built that business. And that freed us from me having to go to work every day. That's how the photography kind of happened. I just love hearing other people's experience, how they got to where they are, because there's so many valuable lessons that are just packed into the experiences that they've had. And in working with probably over 300 clients to date, we've seen the same thing. We get to experience the background of their story, but also the efforts they've made and the things they've tried and failed to make their podcasts in particular successful or not so much. I try to pack these lessons in bite-sized chunks into our podcast optimizer email series. You can find it on our website. There's a great big opt-in right at the top of the page at podcastfasttrack.com. I would love for you to benefit from all the things we've learned over the years. Okay, that's it. Back to Scott's story. That's really incredible. So you build this business up to a six-figure cash flow for yourselves. As you're doing that, I've talked with many photographers before. I know there comes a certain point where the bandwidth issue comes into play because mm. you only have so much time to go shoot. Yeah, photo sessions and weddings and whatever you're doing. So talk to me about that tension when you started feeling that and what were you thinking at that point? And you're absolutely right. Like I, I remember, I can still see myself standing in my kitchen, the house that I built, standing there. And the first day I didn't actually have to go to work for my father's company. It was weird, but it was also so awesome. I'm sitting there, I'm looking out the window. We had this massive field, about two acres. And uh, I was just sipping my coffee and I'm just like, Phew, this is amazing, right? So it was awesome. We, we drove our kids to school every day. We picked our kids up together every single day, every event. It was just awesome. But then, you know, and everybody always says, well, if I could just get there, everything will be perfect. That's what I thought. Then all of a sudden we started growing the business and then you start having those growing pains, right? Then there's only so many time slots in the day that you can do. And then people cancel and then you are depending on that money to come in and it's not coming in. And, you know, the lighting issue, we had, you know, nighttime sessions because that was the best time to do shoots, but then it would rain or it'd be humid or whatever. So we understood that there was only so much we could do to scale this business. And people were coming there for us. They weren't coming there for just a random photographer like Sears would hire, right? They were coming there for Scott and Lisa to make the magic happen. And we would give them a devoted hour's time and all of that stuff. But we knew we, knew we couldn't scale it. There was just no way we were going to be capped at what we were making unless we did other things. 
So that's when we started to, or I started to behind the scenes, I started to dabble a little bit with some online marketing and selling some stuff online. And we, we dabbled with eBay. And so, so you say, you say online marketing, you mean eBay mainly just trying to market your own things or were you doing other stuff? Yeah, I, well, I did build my own Flash website back in the day when Flash was a big thing, right? You remember Flash? Yeah. Yeah. So I remember building a website because I thought that that website was going to really drive more sales and traffic and everything, which I spent so much time learning Flash and uh, Dreamweaver and all of those programs. And again, here's a kid that barely passed high school, but I learned all that stuff very well. And one thing that I did do is I learned Photoshop early on. And that opened up some opportunities for me because then I had people that wanted me to do custom work for them, like custom restoration or custom cards or invitations or anything like that. Once I started to see other people making money online, I'm like, how can I get into this game? Like, this is kind of like passive income in a sense. So that's where I started selling my digital templates on eBay. And um, that's where my eyes got opened up pretty quickly. And I said, how the heck can I get more of this? Because this is scalable. Yeah. So hang on. Digital templates. Tell me what that's all about. I'm not sure I understand what you what you were selling. All right. So at first, it was like we were creating these Christmas cards and holiday cards, Easter cards for our clients. And I would spend an hour, hour and a half custom designing these cards so they can put their picture in it. Nowadays, you go to you know Snapfish or Walmart, wherever, and they have a whole bunch of them already pre-built. So back then, they didn't really have a lot built. So I would customize these tailored just for those people. Have you know three pictures in one, one picture, two pictures, whatever. And I would design them and then I would sell them to my client for an extra 75 bucks, which was nice. But then I I would go and I would list these templates where other photographers could take those and then just use them in their business. And that's where I was started selling like a digital item, but it was really on a CD or a DVD. So that way there people could buy them and then use them for their own business. So you were resourcing other photographers, essentially. You're becoming a service provider to the service provider. Exactly, exactly. And then we also started to say, well, wait a minute here, we're spending a lot of money on our sets. I mean, we would spend $2,500 on a hand painted canvas background because we wanted something new for the for every holiday. And it would be worth it because people would come from all over. But then I'm like, how can I leverage that? Mm -hmm. So I would take pictures of our set and then I would sell those to photographers and I would show them how they could superimpose by shooting, you know, a subject on a white or a green screen and then cut that subject out and then place them in the image as if they were shot in that image. That, that was my next, my next venture that turned into a full-time business that was a six and a half, seven year run of uh, doing very, very well online and just totally opened my eyes to what is possible out there. Wow. And so this was all pre-Amazon oh, yeah. label sales. So you had, a, so to speak, a digital business and career for 67 years. Yep. So you knew it could work. And then what, what happened in your mind when you started hearing about private label sales? I had dabbled in eBay. My wife and I found some uh, old bridges, not old, they were new bridges. Uh, they were cedar bridges that you would put in a garden. And we were like, I wonder if people are buying them on eBay. And we looked and people were spending 140, 150 bucks on these bridges. Wow. And uh, yeah, they're like a four foot bridge that were all compacted into a box. We could buy them for 30. So wow. loaded up the minivan with about 20 of them and uh, we listed them and holy crap, they were selling. So we put our kids through private school with those bridges. Wow. Wow. So you just kept buying more and kept buying more. Yeah. Until they didn't make them anymore. And then we were out and then we, you know, we didn't know anything about sourcing or anything at that time, you know? Yeah. And the funny thing is, is we soon found that other people caught on and then just like a private label product is now, they'll, they'll just rip you off and start selling the same thing. And that's what they uh, did. But then I'm like, well, how can I differentiate myself? Well, here's how I did it, Carrie. All right. I said, these bridges were coming unstained. They were coming in just a regular raw wood. I said, let me offer them in three different stained colors and I'll just stain them in the backyard and I'll put them back in the box. Hmm. So that's what I did. I differentiated myself that way. And I had people buying from me because they were coming certain colors. No one else wanted to do that work, yeah. but I did. I just, you know, put them out in the backyard and took a couple hours and stained about five, six bridges and put them all back in. And I had a whole bunch of the, the cherry bridge and I had some of the walnut bridge and we ran that out for a little while. We made some good money on that. Hmm. That there was like the physical products kind of introduction to that. Yeah. That was your first step into physical products. And then Amazon private label came on and there's this whole new world of sourcing things from other places and figuring out all of that. So I'm sure that was very intriguing to you, another shiny object. What was your first foray into Amazon private label? 
Well, I was hearing about retail arbitrage, basically flipping product. Everybody was doing it on eBay. Now they're just going to do it on Amazon. But Amazon, you know, you could actually take that product if it was new and then send it in and have Amazon FBA fulfill it, you know, fulfilled by Amazon. So I was like, man, that's beautiful. Like, because every bridge I was packing up, my wife and I were taking them to a FedEx place, which was about 20 minutes from our house. So I'm like, holy cow, that, that would be amazing. That's when I decided to look into the Amazon game. And I'm like, but wait a minute here. Retail arbitrage, it's good, but I got to go out there and find new product all the time. See, I got spoiled in the digital world where I'm like, I can create something once and then sell it forever. And it was very similar to even like my digital templates and stuff. Even though I spent, oh, I don't know, let's say I spent a whole full day, an eight hour day making new templates, I could sell them forever. And that was intriguing to me. I'm like, I need to work on more stuff like that versus just going out there and finding 10 of this notepad that people are buying and then 10 of this toy and then 10 of this. And then when they're gone, I got to go find more. I didn't like that because I didn't really need that money at the time either. If I did, I would, I would have went out there and hustled on that probably, but I didn't need it, need it. So I was like, ah, it's too much work. I got too many other things going on. Then I heard about private labeling and I'm like, okay, now you got my interest because now I can find stuff that can be sold and that Amazon's going to kind of let me know by the numbers and then I'm not really guessing and then I can go ahead and get into the game and then find something and then sell it over and over and over again. And I did that right out of the gate. I tested it with five grand. I said to my wife, I'm going to give this thing a shot. I did it. It was a lot easier back then. It's a lot different now. That's why I don't teach it this way anymore. I don't tell them, just go out there and find a random product and start selling it because that's the easiest way to lose a lot of money and have a whole bunch of competition come in and then you're going to be stuck with a lot of units. But four years ago, it worked. You know, you get it up there, you'd sell it for a while. And I had some of those those widget type products and they did okay. My first year did over 300K from just kind of experimenting with it, you know? yeah. Yeah. So, but then it changed very, very quickly actually. And probably a year and a half after that, people started catching on. People like me that are talking about it, you know, started to get more awareness to it. But actually it didn't upset me because it actually made it where it was harder. And that actually was better for me. Cause then I'm like, okay, cool. People actually got to do the work. Kind of like the bridges, right? I stained mine. They didn't want to stain them. If you do the extra work, you will be rewarded. Yeah. So now you're going to figure out what is it you can do to level up your game to be the guy that's got the market. So that makes total sense. Now you mentioned there really where I want to go with this. And that is People like you talking about Amazon private label, and you decided to do that through a podcast, at least one of the ways. I don't know. Maybe you did something before that. Tell me that story. How you how you decided on a podcast and why you decided to do it the way you did? Yeah. Well, you know, one of those uh, entrepreneurs that's like, you know, if I could just get the attention in a market, which I've done so many times, right? I did it locally with my brick and mortar business, with my photography studio, did that very well. It's the same idea. I built a little email list of 500 people that were in my area that came to our studio and I would send them out an email and let them know that we have sessions and I would fill those, you know, attention, get people to know they can trust you. And then they will come back and they will tell people, give them a good product. So then I did that with digital products with my uh, digital templates and stuff. And I built up the attention by giving people value and getting them to know, like, and trust, and then, you know, give them products that they potentially would want to buy. It, it's very, it's very simple, yeah. but so many people don't want to do that, that work right. of getting the attention. And sometimes they just don't think they have the skill set to do that, which I think everyone has a skill set that they can teach or at least share. So as I did this a bunch of different times, everyone out there was talking about kind of like, you know, go out there and, uh, you know, kind of game the system. And I'm like, I don't want to go with the gaming, the system thing. I want to kind of show people what I did and kind of document that process. Now I've been a follower of Pat Flynn for years. Um, and, uh, you know, great guy, great family guy. And I just really respected the way that he went about it. He's like, you know, I'm just going to give everything away. And eventually people will either want to purchase from me or go through an affiliate link or whatever, but I could help a lot of people. And in return, I'll probably get compensated some way, somehow. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and start a podcast. Now, little side note, I started two other podcasts before this one that didn't really go anywhere. So tell me about those. Sure. I did one that was in fitness because I was uh, 40 years old at the time. I'm 46 now. I did this program called Insanity. I was actually 39 and uh, I got pretty shredded and it felt really good. And I'm like, okay, maybe I need to help guys that are over 40 
you know, get back in shape or actually believe that they can get in shape, you know, said, you know what, maybe I'll go out there and start a podcast on fitness and really tailor the the men over 40. And I had a buddy of mine that him and I would kind of work out, not even together. He's in Arizona. I'm in, I was in New York at the time. I'm like, we, we were kind of like workout buddies, but by voicemail and stuff. So I said, let's, let's just hop on and talk about our own stuff. We did like six episodes and then it was like, eh, we just kind of lost interest. Then we got a couple hundred downloads and, but it wasn't, I didn't see it as something that I wanted to do for a very long time, I guess. And I guess I dabbled in it and I kind of learned podcasting. I liked being on the mic. Um, little side note for people too that are listening. Like when I was growing up and I was 17, I was in a heavy metal rock band. So I played guitar. I sang a little bit. So I've always wanted to be on stage. I kind of thrive in that environment. I get a lot of energy from it. So I think it's coming full circle because I am on the mic now but just in a different way, you know? Sure. Yeah. So I, I, I dabbled with that. I, I learned how to set up a feed. I learned how to, so I, I learned through that process. It wasn't a failure and it was something I was doing as more or less like a hobby. And so then I said, well, what do I really like talking about? I really like talking about business. I like talking about this, what were you and I are talking about? I just yeah. enjoy that. So I was like, maybe I'll just start a business podcast. So I tried that too broad. And I, I think I recorded like maybe 10 or 15 episodes. Didn't see really a lot of traction. I seen that I was competing with a lot of other people. It's a very competitive space. It's kind of a dirty space too, where it can get a little sleazy. And I'm like, uh, I, I kind of scrapped that whole thing as well. So let me ask you a question real quick before you scrap that idea on me. Yeah, yeah. Why too broad? What made you think it was too broad? It was trying to get any business, right? It was like, oh, you got a business over here. You're a chiropractor. Let me help you. Oh, you're a, uh, you know, someone that sells dog training lessons. Let me help you. So it was too broad in that. Uh, I think today I could do that. I think I could do it. But what I have found is if you can niche down in the beginning, you're going to have a much greater chance of standing out. And that's mm. what I did here. And that's kind of what I seen because I was going through this in my head. This is kind of how I had the idea to start the podcast that I've been doing now for four years. It was the idea of, I'm trying to learn this Amazon stuff more. I can't really find any good content that doesn't feel like it's a sales pitch every single second. And I think every where I turn, there's like an episode here, but then they don't talk about that on a regular basis. And then there's an episode here, but they don't talk about it on a regular basis. So I'm like, you know what? Maybe I should just have a podcast that's about selling products on Amazon, which kind of came back to bite me a little bit. We could talk about that in a minute, but it did give me the attention that I have now, which now allows me to do some of the things that I'm doing now, which is pretty cool. But if I didn't niche down, it might've been a lot harder. I might not be sitting here talking to you today. Yeah. As I look at your journey and, and just the part that I've been privileged enough to see, you launched your show right when the craze about Amazon private label was beginning, in my view. I mean, it may have been yeah. rolling already, but it seems like the timing was just perfect. Talk to me about timing. What does that play into the success of a show like yours has been? It is like important, but in the same breath, like you can't really plan timing. You can't. And that's why I think you have to play, right? You have to play where you want to play. And if I hadn't did the photography, I wouldn't have learned probably how to launch digital products. I wouldn't have learned about getting attention online, email marketing and all of that stuff. But that stuff allowed me to be ready for when the opportunity came about. That's why I'm not really a big believer in luck. I think luck happens because you have been given that opportunity because you did stuff to get you, you know, at the place where you received that opportunity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think timing does, but I don't think you can sit around and wait for timing. I think you just got to move. You got to, like I always say, you know, that Carrie, take action. Yeah. And I believe it because there's that, that effect from that action that you take that teaches you, it allows you to see what can happen. And then from there, you can make decisions, but you can also take that skill set that you learned from setting up the one feed for the podcast that I did two episodes before this one that allowed me to at least feel confident that I could set up a feed, right? Timing is, is important, but it's not everything. I think just getting out there and being very consistent with anything that you do over time, but I think niching down is really important. So again, if I was going to go hardcore into fitness, like right now, it would have to be like, Fitness for men over 40, yeah, right? It's not, yeah. and, and it might even be like keto, right? Like it's like, you need to really just niche it down. The cool thing that can happen though, once that happens and you build up somewhat of a loyal audience, 
you can move wherever you want to move. Like I'm, I've done that in the past two years now. Like I'm not necessarily the Amazon guy anymore, although I still get said, Hey, Scott, you know, you're the Amazon guy, but it's now more, um, the Scott helps people build an e-commerce brand and not just a go sell products on Amazon and build an Amazon business. You're talking about having to make a pivot when the niche that you've chosen is either too limiting to where you need to go as a business or is getting too flooded with competition or is it both hand? Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a little bit of both. For me personally, I just didn't want to be known as just the Amazon guy. I'm like, wait a minute. I've been doing this longer than Amazon came on the scene here with all this private label stuff. I need to share with other people and other businesses what they can do. Like right now, like I haven't even touched on helping a blogger. Like if you're a blogger, I could take a blogger that's got traffic, that's getting some affiliate sales, and we can turn that into a private label business now because they already have the get attention in your market, build out content, build an email list, communicate with your audience, like all of that stuff. So for me, I was kind of limiting myself by saying like, I'm only going to cater to this one segment, but now I want to be able to help all businesses be able to leverage e-commerce, but also leverage the attention in the market and how to really do that in a non-sleazy way. Yeah. Yeah. I love that non-sleazy way. There's plenty of the sleaze out there, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to be a part of that. And like you had said earlier, you know, you feel like you kind of learn who I am and you can't really hide from that. Like if people meet me in person, they're like, wow, Scott, you are exactly how you are on the podcast. I'm like, yeah, that's kind of how it should be. Right. Like, <laughs> it should be. Yeah. I want us to be like, you know, if we're hanging out, having coffee, I want it. I don't want it to be weird. Like you're like, oh, you're not really that guy. Yeah. It's important to me. I appreciate that. I, I so appreciate that. I think that that's one of the beauties of podcasting is the intimacy of having your voice right in someone's ears. Absolutely. Enables you to build that kind of a relationship. So talk to me about the success you've received in your businesses that you attribute directly to your podcast. What is podcasting brought to you that would not have happened otherwise? Wow. Yeah, there's a lot. The audience, first and foremost, like my listeners, the people that have stuck with me, even through the pivot, because as I did pivot, I did lose some, you know, some listeners because they just wanted all strategy and tactics, but the hardcore listeners, like they're there and I appreciate them so much and forget the money that's been made through the podcast. Just the people that I've met has been just incredible. Like when I meet people in person that are either at an event or just wherever meet up, they're just good people. And I'm just, honored to be able to do that. And like you said, having people listen to you, like some people say they binge listened on a 12 hour flight. That's a lot of Scott in your earbuds, right? (laughs) But you can't help but not know me now. Yeah. Right. And so there's such a deep bond and a connection through a podcast, even more so than a YouTube video because YouTube, you know, the average view time is like five to seven minutes is retention. But as far as like normal, it's like 15 seconds. If you don't have something that I'm interested in, I'm gone. But on a podcast, you're kind of away from all the distractions. You're committing to a 20 or a 30 minute podcast episode or sometimes even longer. And you develop a, a know, like, and trust very, very deeply. And then it becomes easy when you want to you know, sell something or offer something or have people rally around you or support you in your next pivot or whatever, right? The success really is also meeting other people in this space that I really enjoy and I like. I mean, right now we're doing a show called The 5-Minute Pitch. And that was done because I was at Steve Chu's event speaking and him myself, Mike Jackness and Greg Mercer, we're having dinner and we're like, you know, we should do a show like Shark Tank. And we're not making any money with that show, like zero. We're raising money through sponsorships and we're gonna give away a $50,000 prize to the winner, but we're doing it because we enjoy it and it's fun. And yes, will things come from it? Probably. I don't know what it is right now, but there will probably be some benefits that come through with it. But right now, there's no monetization strategy in play there. But for me, moving forward, and even what's gotten to me to where I am now, it's just really about how can I continue to help people, but also not feel like I have to only talk about one specific thing. I have so much more to offer and I have to believe in that myself. You know what I mean? Like I have to say like, listen, Scott, yes, you are good at helping people get their market selected and then launch a product. Yes. Yes. Okay. Give yourself credit. But I can also help people get out of their own way. You know what I mean? I can help people get moving or people that don't want to start, get them to start. And then that they started, now they're seeing success and they're like, holy crap, if I never did that. Yeah. You know, has 
positive things happen financially, of course, you know, but that's with anything. I mean, you could go back in my, my digital products brand with, you know, the photography stuff. I mean, that was very successful. I'm very grateful for those times, but it led me to where I am now. Yeah. And your podcasting also very closely related to that audience has enabled you to do more intentional, more purposeful things with people. I know you've hosted some events across the country at Mm -hmm. various times and things like that. Talk to me about that and how that flowed out of the podcast. Yeah. Well, you know, you had people saying like, are you doing any meetups? Are you, uh, you know, are you ever going to do a workshop? Are you ever, you know, so that it was kind of like people asking for it. And I'm like, well, maybe I should do it. I get really excited about being in a room live with people in person and getting that immediate response or the immediate questions and the energy. So if I'm going to travel to a city and I'm like, you know, I want to meet people that are listeners that can't necessarily come here or whatever, right? So I'll go there, do a free one. We'll spend three, four hours together at a coffee shop and we'll have 30, 40 people show up. That type of stuff is really cool. And then, you know, I've done some smaller events, paid events where we do workshops and stuff to where, uh, you know, we have like 25, 30 people in a room and we we hang out for two days. And then since, uh, you know, just last year, we, we started an inner circle where there's eight people in our inner circle. Uh, we're not accepting any new people at this time, but it's, it's a very high level. We meet three times a year and we really work on their businesses, but these are high level, like six and seven figure sellers. And that's so awesome as well. So I like to help people at all different stages of their business. And for me to be able to work side by side in an environment like two days straight is like really awesome. And I'm looking forward to doing more of that in the near future. One of my newest business ventures is I just purchased a lake house and I'm turning it into an Airbnb, oh, a luxury cool. Airbnb. Yeah. And I am going to use that as my inner circle meeting uh, uh, location. And I'm going to do some uh, some two-day workshops there, small, very small, like five people tops. You know, people will, will pay to be there, but the people that are going to be coming to those are businesses that are at that level. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm trying to help people at all different levels of their business. Yeah. That is super cool, Scott. I think that that lake house idea is brilliant. I've... Uh, listen to plenty of podcasts where people are making Airbnb the backbone of their real estate business and they intentionally buy properties near a, a resort or near a hospital or near yeah. you know a college and just Airbnb it forever and, and make a killing. So it's it's really good. I mean that's a whole nother whole nother uh, venture, but it's a, it's a, and again it's one of those things. I don't know really how it's going to do right now. We're in a, we're in right now we're in the middle of a full renovation. Mm-hmm. So it's about, it's going to be about another month and a half before it's even available. So it's a little scary. You know, yeah. I got some money tied up here. I got uh, you know, I got a little risk out there, but I've always had these little risks and they always kind of seem to turn out okay. Either I I learn something and I get out of it or you know, it turns into something really awesome and I ride it for a while, yeah. you know. So it's a new experience. I'm excited about it, you know? Yeah. So coming full circle, you started out talking about growing up in a home where your mother was an alcoholic and it pushed you toward this desire for security and stability. And now here you are, you've still got projects in the works that aren't exactly secure. There's some risk involved. There's some things that aren't the same. How is the Scott today different than the Scott back then in terms of how you deal with the insecurity and the instability? Yeah. Well, I still have to kind of talk to myself. I still have to remind myself that, you know, these are normal and they're just at a different level. You know, it's like I'm putting on a talk about events. I'm putting on an event coming up this uh, September. We're going to have 250 people in a room and we're going to do a full fledged event. A little nervous about it, to be honest with you. Right. It's like it's a whole new thing. And, uh, you know, risky, but I've got a great team around me and I've got great people in my life, including my wife and my family. And they just continue to support me and, you know, keep telling me that what I'm doing is what I'm supposed to be doing and making me a believer in myself. So I, that's why I think it's really important that you you do have people in your life that help you and not pull you down. I'm a big believer in that. But the different Scott today is that I've been down the road where I've been in, you know, insecure. I've been, uh, you know, unsure. And that's when I really have to just press and go forward because I know that on the other side, there's probably something great that's going to come from it. So it's just a lot of going through it and then seeing what comes out at the other end and then saying like, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out when we get to that stage, but let's not overthink this thing right now. Mm. And that sounds like great advice for anybody who's thinking of starting something new, starting a business venture, starting a podcast. Uh, don't overthink it. Just as you love to say, Scott, take action. Yeah. Everyone wants to make sure that they're going to be protected. I mean, that's what our nature is, right? It's like, we want to protect ourselves. It's, it's our built-in, you know, security blanket, if you will, right? Like we want that, 
but it doesn't mean it always has to be like, yes, you don't want to say, I'm going to jump off that cliff and I hope I make it to the other side. A little too risky. But if you're like, if I do this thing and it doesn't work out, what's the worst case? Oh, I will lose $3,000 on money that I had set aside to go on a vacation. That's not the end of the world, right? You didn't lose your house. I wouldn't advise that. So you got you to gotta see really what's the worst that's going to happen. Then the other thing you have to ask yourself is what if I don't do it? You know, what's the, what could have happened that won't happen now or even have a chance to happen if I don't do it? I'll be stuck in this nine to five job or I'll be, you know, still in the construction field when I know that I should be out there helping people because I can feel that that's my calling, Mm. right? You got to understand that there's risk at anything that you do. It's just a matter of what is the risk and are you willing to take on that risk? And in most cases, it's not as bad as you really think it is. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's a great place to end. Scott, I so appreciate you sharing a little more of your story than I knew before and uh, a little more of how you got to where you are. I can see where that take action attitude has come from. That's for sure. I appreciate you having me, Carrie, and uh, I appreciate you and everything that you've done to really, I, I look at your, uh, your part of the TAS team because you've, you know, helped us get the, uh, the podcast out there, our show notes, our, you know, all, all of the different components, and you've done a really great job at helping us do that. So I want to thank you personally here uh, and let you know that myself and my team, we, we totally appreciate you and you helping us get the word out. Well, that is appreciated very much. We love working with people who are doing great things, and you are among those. You can find everything related to Scott and the work he's doing at theamazingseller.com, an appropriate name, I think. And you can also reach out to our team for any help with your podcast production, organization, coaching, strategy, all that kind of stuff. It's just what we do. It's like candy to us. Hey, I wanted to let you know the resources that we used in this episode. This track that you're listening to right now is called Shaving Mirror, and it's by Kevin McLeod. You can find it on incompetech.com. It is licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. Also, that rock and roll sort of theme that was underneath the beginning of Scott's story is found on a website called Audionautics. And it's an incredible guy named Jason Shaw who puts all kinds of free resources there for people to use in projects just like this. Go check out Audionautics and there is a little contact form there. Send Jason a message and let him know how much you appreciate what he's doing. I appreciate you. It's been a long time since I've had one of these episodes out, but you know, life's been kind of crazy. Been making money, trying to feed the family, and then this coronavirus thing hits. So I want you to know, I'm thinking about you. I'm praying for you. I'm praying for everybody out there that we will weather this storm and be better off for it in the end. Hey, thanks so much for listening to Podcastification and this special episode of Podcaster Stories. 